Bible reading today comes from Psalm 14. For the director of music of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. But the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Well, it's lovely to be with you here again at Trinity Church Colonel Light Gardens for a second week. Uh, as uh, has been introduced, my name is Geoffrey Lynn. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity Church in Adelaide. It's lovely to spend these three weeks with you. Um, I hope that uh, you've had a good week, particularly reflecting on Psalm 13. Uh, it's only Wednesday at the moment as we're recording, and I've been trying to do the thing that I suggested last week, which is to start each day with those last few verses of Psalm 13. Um, can you remember them? Uh, I trust in God's unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Uh, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Um, I'm not sure how that's been for you, but it's been a really helpful way for me to think about my day and what it is that I'm trying to live for each day. Uh, we come this week to Psalm 14, and uh, once again, can I encourage you please to have a Bible open in front of you, uh, to turn the notifications and apps off on your screen. Um, download an outline if you've not already had a chance to do so. It was emailed out during the week, and it's available on the Slack channel. Um, and uh, we're going to look at Psalm 14 together. Just a hint or a, a kind of foretaste at the end, I've got some show and tell, uh, which is really just reliving my fantasy of, from childhood of wanting to be a play school presenter. Uh, but that'll be something to look forward to at the end. Well, you'll see from the outline there that the question that I want to begin with this week, it's printed at the top of the handout, how would seeing God here today change the way that you live? How would seeing God here today change the way that you live. Wherever you are, with whomever you are watching this, how would seeing God here today change the way that you live? What would you stop doing? What might you start doing? That's the question of what a try and comes to terms with because I think that's the issue that Psalm 14 is raising for us. Uh, like last week, I'm going to follow a similar structure to this talk. I'm going to begin by us reflecting on what Psalm 14 tells us about God then we'll move to seeing how it points us towards Jesus before finally reflecting on what Psalm 14 asks of us today. Well, firstly then, what Psalm 14 says about God. Uh, in many ways, Psalm 14 is like Psalm 13. Uh, there are very few details about the specific situation, although we are told there at the heading it's for the director of music and it's of David. This time it feels less like a particular life and death situation of Psalm 13, less of a crisis and more, I think, a general musing on humanity, on the state of the world, on society as a whole. 
for those of us who read newspapers, I guess where Psalm 13 was kind of like a news report of an incident, perhaps Psalm 14 is more like an op-ed piece about what's going on. Like Psalm 13, uh, it's another very short song. There's only seven verses, it's in two parts, verses 1 through 4 outline the problem, and then verses 5 through 7, the solution. Let's start with the problem then in verses 1 through 4. David pulls no punches in describing the problem in the opening verse. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, it's worth noting here that when David uses the phrase in his heart, uh, that's less about a, um, a comment about him speaking to himself or in private. It's more a description of resolve, that is, how he will live. And the statement itself, there is no God, uh, that need not be the outraged cry of a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. Rather, it could be less extreme. Perhaps David is saying, uh, the fool says, even if there is a God, he can't tell me how to live. I'm not accountable to him in any way. Well, because what we think about God inevitably determines how we treat others who are made by him, David goes on in verse 1 to observe, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. What David is doing, I think, here is reminding us that the vertical always shapes the horizontal. The vertical always shapes the horizontal. How you think about God always shapes the way in which you treat those whom he has made. And so if you think that there is no external judge, then what life is all about is living the way you want, living it to the max. Or or perhaps more cynically, life is about trying to get away with as much as you can. Of course, the problem that David's observing in Psalm 14 is that when everyone lives that way, what you end up with is widespread, rampant corruption. You get the cancer that eats away at a society from within. Now, I want to stop and acknowledge uh, just how fortunate we are to live in Australia. Thankfully, for most of us, uh, this sense of such devastating corruption, it's largely unknown to us, it's unfamiliar. We live in a liberal democracy. It's largely under the rule of law. We have free and fair elections. I'm constantly telling my children when they're asking, do you have to vote again? I say, well, it's great to be able to vote because it means that if you don't like your leaders, you can vote them off the island every few years. But of course, some of us, some in this church, some particularly who've moved here from other parts of the world, perhaps to study, they know firsthand what it's like how appalling it is to live in a place where corruption is the norm. This is the reason why my father's family fled communist China after World War II. Now, so we don't gloss over David's devastating social critique in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 will go on to rule out any possible exceptions, any exclusions. Pick it up in verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, all have turned away, all have become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. Now, you kind of get the point, don't you? 
David's not very subtle here. What he's offering is a searing indictment against the entire human race. And it's a pretty brutal commentary on the human condition. This is what theologians call, and I printed it there on your handout, this is what theologians call the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. It acknowledges that all of us, everyone, is born into sin. That all of us are broken and corrupted in some way. The way in which I try and describe this to the ESs, to the university students whom I work with, is that, um, and much as I hate to admit it, what original sin means is that, for me, the only thing stopping me from becoming a megalomaniac dictator is opportunity. If I had the chance, I'd take it. Let me ask you, what do you think? What do you think of David's diagnosis? Is he overreaching at this point? Or would you say, eh, harsh, but fair? My reflection this week, as I've thought about our country this year, is that Psalm 14 could be describing Australia. So it's true that we have seen some wonderful acts of kindness from our countrymen. I know this is going to feel like a lifetime ago, but do you recall the amazing generosity we witnessed during the bushfires back in January? We've seen some amazing acts of kindness, but at the same time, well, to sadly remind us of what we all know to be true from the last few weeks, we've seen the very worst. We've seen ludicrous panic buying. Uh, this week in particular, we've seen blatant rule flouting. You know, the celebrities, particularly the sporting stars, for whom they say, those rules don't apply to me. And we've seen appalling racism. So to one lady from the church that I go to, uh, she's an ED doctor in a hospital here in Adelaide. She's of Asian extraction. And one day when she was consulting, someone came into the department and the first question she got asked was, where are you from? When she said that she was from Singapore, the patient asked if she could see another doctor instead. Here is David's diagnosis of what all of us are like at heart. Now, let me acknowledge, it does raise the question, is there any good in us at all? Because David seems pretty blunt. Well, let me say, of course there is good in all of us. There must be. We are made by the good God in his image. So, of course, there are traces or vestiges, traces or vestiges of the way in which our God has made us. But what Psalm 14 is reminding us is that even when we do do good, our motives are tinged with impurity. And this is a slightly different doctrine. Again, I've referred to it on your handout. It's called, uh, this is a very happy one, it's called the Doctrine of Total Depravity. I thought I'd leave that happy topic for another week, um, but if you'd like, go and ask Matt about it. He'd love to talk more about that with you. The critical question, though, in Psalm 14 is not what do we think of our world, 
but what does God think of how we are living? You see the answer to that back in verse 2. So come with me back to verse 2 of Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind. It's a pretty striking image, actually. It's the sense that in God's sight, you and I, we're just like tiny little ants scurrying around. Now, it's important to note that when David says the Lord looks down on mankind, um, it's not suggesting that God is therefore somehow remote or unapproachable. At that view, that there is a God but is disconnected from us, that's called deism. Uh, it's a, a pretty weak form of theism. And the reason why David's not suggesting that is because, as we'll see in verse 5, well, actually, God is present in the company of the righteous. He is not removed in entirety. But instead, what I think David is doing here is that he's pointing out that unbelievers who insist there is no God, well, they won't even raise their eyes to try to find him. So it's no surprise that they never do. That leaves then David's final grim illustration of how the vertical shapes the horizontal in verse 4. Verse 4, Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. David is saying here that unbelievers don't just drift towards corruption in pursuit of self-interest. Inevitably, they'll turn their sights on believers even if we stay silent. Why? Well, I presume that's because God's people are an awkward reminder of the God they are trying to deny. They devour my people as though eating bread. That too is a powerfully evocative image. It's an image of callous, thoughtless oppression. To give you a contrasting example, uh, from time to time when my in-laws come around, uh, they love to spoil my children by bringing the most enormous wheels of triple cream brie you have ever seen in your life. When they do, you should watch the way in which my kids eat them. Uh, they kind of savour every mouthful as if it's a little taste of heaven in their mouth. The image here they devour my people as though eating bread. Well, it's, it's an image designed to make us think that it's hasty, inconsequential. It's something so mundane that it's not even worth mentioning or remembering. That's how Psalm 14 describes unbelievers treating God's people with reckless indifference. Well, I wonder if you noticed, having said all that, that verse 4 contained the first hint of the solution. We spent a lot of time on the problem, but there is this very small hint of the solution. And it's in the little word that David uses there in the second line, they devour my people as though eating bread. David speaks of my people, as if to say that, well, even if no one else notices the oppression of God's people, David does. Or more importantly, so does God. 
And that brings us then to the solution. Verses 5 through 7. Uh, let me read a few verses from there. Verse 5. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Now let me just start with a question here, and it's printed on your handout. Who are the they in verse 5? The ones who are overwhelmed with dread. It's a little bit confusing. Uh, There's two possibilities. The they could be referring to the evildoers from verse 4, Uh, The evildoers who are overwhelmed with dread because they are finally tasting the horrific reality of God's judgment. That's one possibility. The other is that the they here are my people. They are God's people who, despite being overwhelmed with dread, still cling to optimistic hope. Why? Well, verse 5, for God is present in the company of the righteous. And so verse 6, you evildoers who frustrate the plans of the poor, poor, the Lord is still their refuge. Now, either way, I think that David is insisting that whenever God's people suffer, either in society at large or specifically because of their faith, still God is present. God is present for the righteous poor, which I think is David's way of referring to believers. What's really interesting is that in the whole of Psalm 14, there are only two references, two verbs to describe what God does in the here and now. Verse 2, he looks down from heaven. Verse 5, he is present. See, despite the fool saying in verse 1, there is no God, despite evildoers frustrating the plans of the poor, so that actually it looks like the evildoers are getting away with it, all too often it feels like the rich get richer, the poor get the picture, some things never change. Still, David is saying that because God has come near, there is hope. It's a lovely picture here. God is present. It's the picture, I think, um, if you'll allow me to put it this way, it's the picture of an infant who's woken up in the middle of the night with a nightmare, who calls out for its parents. What do mum and dad do? Well, mum and dad don't just shout from their own bedroom down the hallway, oh, it's okay, you'll be fine. No, they come running. And they are here. Now, what's intriguing is that Psalm 14 makes little mention of God ever holding the oppressors of his people to account. So, all I'll say today is that if it's foolish to mock the Lord, to assert that there is no God, If that's a foolish thing to do, it's no wiser to attack his children. There is that saying, beware the wrath of an angry father or a lioness protecting her cubs. If you've joined us today as someone who's not yet a Christian, then once again, 
thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, we're really delighted that you've actually been able to be part of this community in a different kind of way, and we trust that you'll continue to do so and join us in person when we do start meeting again together. Here's what I think Psalm 14 might have to say to you. Even if you haven't devoured God's people like bread, and almost certainly you haven't, you've still ignored God himself. And there are consequences. See, simply asserting that he's not there or that you're not accountable to him does not make it so. And if I could put it this way, that's a risk that this church doesn't want you to take. That's why it's committed to outreach, even in the time of COVID-19. So perhaps afterwards, stick around, come to the chat, talk with someone from this church. Where Psalm 14 concludes is in verse 7, and it concludes with hope for God's people, with a great prayer for what I have termed, again on your handout, and some blanks for you to fill in, I've termed them the two R's, Two R's, not rock and roll, not rest and recreation. The hope is for restoration and rejoicing. Verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Uh, like last week's psalm, actually, the right response to God's intervention is to rejoice. Did you notice he how salvation for God's people comes out of Zion, the city of David. It's a hint, I think, that this is a psalm from later in David's life, after he captured Jerusalem. But of course, that leads us to ask the question then, where does salvation come for us, us who aren't Old Testament Jews? And so then, to point two, how Psalm 14 points us to Jesus. How does Psalm 14 point us to Jesus? Uh, as I've tried to say in this series, in lots of different ways, I've picked just a couple for this week. Um, here are a few reflections. In Christ, salvation is not just for Israel from Zion. Salvation is for all peoples. For Christ sends us to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all nations. Or perhaps you might reflect on the theme of how the vertical shapes the horizontal. Knowing that we live in God's world under God's rule influences every decision we make. And not just to avoid corruption, but more positively, in the words of the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan, to choose to love God and to love our neighbour as ourself. But where actually I'd like to draw us to today in showing how Psalm 14 points us to Jesus, is in the conviction that in Christ, God is present. God has come near. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And though he has now ascended to the Father's right hand, still he has sent his spirit to be with his people. And that's the reason for the passage from 1 Corinthians 3 there on your handout. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God, by his spirit, is present with us. Of course, that's the reason why we long to meet again, why we long to meet in person, so we might rejoice together in our shared hope.
Well, what Psalm 14 says about God, how it points us to Jesus, let me finish then with what Psalm 14 asks of us today. Uh, Here I have just three brief reflections or implications. Let me run through them quickly. Firstly, Psalm 14 sums up all of humanity and says that we are fools if we ignore God and our accountability to him. And that means that this is the underlying crisis that is devastating our world today. In other words, COVID-19 is not the root cause of the extraordinary suffering being wrought in our world in 2020. No, COVID-19 is just a symptom of an underlying problem, of a much bigger and ongoing affliction that is besetting all of humanity. Don't mishear me. We must do everything we can to treat those symptoms, to mitigate the pain caused by the pandemic. But what Psalm 14 says is that the proof that as a race we still haven't grasped what's going on in our world at the moment is that we keep longing for life to return to normal. That's why, of course, all of our hope rests on border protection and social distancing and contact tracing apps and ultimately a vaccine. Our hope rests there so that once this crisis passes, we can go back to normal, to the way we were before, to ignoring God and his rule over our lives. And to infinitely postponing and deferring the consequences that we'd rather not face. If all we are doing is whatever it takes to treat the symptoms, not solve the underlying problem, I'm sure you can see we're going to be back in crisis mode soon enough. It'll just be with a different manifestation of the same problem, the same fundamental flaw, that we are in rebellion against God. Psalm 14 is saying that the problem with our world today is not, I'm going to use this phrase, it's not novel. It's not a virus that's ravaging our bodies. The problem with our world is the defiance that is corrupting our hearts. It's one that's afflicted humanity ever since Genesis 3. That's why Psalm 14 will say we are fools if we don't learn the most important lesson of all, Namely, that we cannot help ourselves. We desperately need God's help. And in Jesus, God has come near to rescue his people. And so here's my second reflection, my second implication. Psalm 14 says that God's restoration of his people, it will come, but it will come at the end of time. Not now. See, Psalm 14 ends with a confidence for God's future salvation, not with an expectation of his deliverance today. Yes, he is present now in the company of his people, but did you notice how verse 7 put his intervention? 
Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. God's intervention is in the future, ultimately. And that means that his people, his people are not separated from evildoers now. It will only be at the end of time. Jesus tells many parables to describe this situation. The wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, the sorting will only be at the end. And that means that for us who are believers, we belong in the world, even though we are not part of it. And it's our commission and our privilege to witness to and warn this world of the coming wrath. Of course, the comfort is, the good news, the gospel, is that God in Christ is with us too. And so to my third and final reflection, how would seeing God here today change the way you live? This, of course, is back to where we began with the opening question. Um, It's the takeaway for today. In fact, there are some discussion questions that you'll see printed on your handout that I'd love for you to reflect on. Perhaps you might join us over morning tea in one of the Zoom chats and talk with others at that point. How would seeing God here today change the way that you live? And I'm asking that not just in the context of the suffering and persecution that's depicted in Psalm 14, but in every season, in every stage of life, both good and bad. Because it didn't change the evildoers in David's time but it changed everything for David. So how would it change us? Well, to help this stick, I thought I'd um, offer you an image that might help you to understand the importance of seeing that God is present amongst us. And this is the show and tell part that I was talking about before. Uh, As I said, uh, this is going to be fun. I've got something in my bag. Ah, Now, Last week, uh, of course, I talked a bit about multifocals and um, divergent lenses. You know, the idea of being able to see both back and forwards at the same time. Well, this week's illustration, um, it's to help us to remember that God is present with us uh, even if we can't always see him. Now, how to do that? Well, I think what we need is some kind of optical device that would enable us to see things in a different spectrum, things that aren't ordinarily visible. And the best that I could come up with then for what I wanted to show you today was I wanted to reach into my bag and bring out a pair of night vision goggles. Now, I like watching thriller movies and that kind of stuff, and you know how they, they put them on the head and they run around. Um, now, this week I, I went to a couple of shops. I tried to buy some, but I discovered, well, firstly, A, they're very expensive um, and they're hard to find. So what I did was I settled for a cheap ripoff from a $2 shop, right? So here are my night vision goggles. There's a night scope on top. Actually, I suspect they're not going to be very effective. But you get the point, right? In the darkness, they enable you to see what otherwise would be invisible. Psalm 14 is like that night vision scope. It's reminding us that God is present in the company of his people, even when we can't see him. So what I want to ask you is, how would seeing God here today change the way you live? Now, you see the discussion questions there. 
What would you stop doing? What would you start doing? What would you stop doing? Well, actually, every Christian person knows this one. We'd repent of our sin. We'd put it away. We'd start with the little and respectable sins that desensitise us to the more serious ones over time. But what would you start doing? As I thought about it this week, if I could see God here every moment of every day, I'd take heart. I'd probably start revising some of my longer-term life goals and I'd probably choose to not worry so much about the trivialities that consume me from day to day. How would seeing God here today change the way you live? What would you stop doing? What would you start doing? Here's the good news. Jesus is here. He is here by his spirit. One day, soon enough, he'll be here in person. So, brothers and sisters, we hold on for just a little longer. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have come near to us in him and by your spirit you are with us each day. Give us, we pray, the eyes that we need to see you, even when at times you feel invisible. And we pray that in so doing, you might give us courage to be able to rejoice that you are good and that your love endures forever. Amen.